Welcome to RoyCast, originally a Succession podcast. My name is Brendan, and I'm joined by my co-host Gabby. Hi, Gabby. How you doing? I'm pretty good. Hey, Brendan. Hey, everybody. So, continuing our kind of identity crisis period, <laughs> as the TV show we had originally decided to cover has ended, Gabby and I, you know, we continue chatting. You know, we don't only talk to each other on mic on this podcast continue talking about things we're watching i'm really enjoying gabby and her cinephile era getting into getting into movies talking to her about it's 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 a great experience where gabby has this wonderful quality where uh i can just recommend you anything and you just watch it it's like the next day i just see that you've logged it on letterboxd it's the real like albert brooks broadcast news i say it here it comes out there kind of thing which very which very much tickles me because you're you're very adventurous it's very refreshing i I really like that I really appreciate that. And I, I consider myself sort of like a student right now. You know, I didn't uh, study film in any sort of formal capacity. And so, like, I feel like I'm having my my second sort of uh, undergrad experience and Brendan and, and Adam to some extent and to, and my, my followers and people on Letterboxd are you guys are all my professors. So it's 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 much appreciated. And yeah, I will uh, watch pretty much anything except for the genres that I hate, which will, you know, sort of talk about today but what's uh, what's what 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 are your rap and country in terms of cinema that you won't watch man i mean it's fantasy it's just not for me um anything you know anything that's that's too comic book oriented or superhero oriented i know those are different things and i shouldn't conflate you know but well um, no i mean that's a that's a great uh actually (laughs) conflating those brings a lot of interesting comparisons to my but i guess you wouldn't have been uh queued up to see the theatrically released game of thrones movies had they gone ahead with that pitch no i uh i i tried to watch game of thrones i think we've talked about this on this podcast because i remember me and kate me and kate were like the you know two of the only people who like did not the holdouts get, in, get into game of thrones at all but yeah you know like uh dune and tenet all that stuff like i just i i will never be able to get into it i i respect it but it just it it doesn't work for me i remember in like uh maybe in like second or third grade they were they read us the hobbit in school like every afternoon we read like a chapter or two and i remember everybody being so engrossed and excited about it and so into it and i was was just so bored out of my skull and I was like what's wrong with me like is there something (laughs) wrong with me you know because everybody was so excited about these little hobbits and um I just did not give a flying fuck um so (laughs) I've always been like that you know always been a hype like a hyper realist you can call me I don't know that's but, very um, funny. We could get into a whole sidebar there because, yeah, the Lord of the Rings and the the Little Hobbits, as you call them, were a big <laughs> a big part of my childhood. But I very much respect the many people. That, yes, <laughs> that like no, 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 it's not me. The rest of the culture is fucked up. It's not me. Um, I I, I appreciate that perspective. And so, yeah, the when we we get to talking about all kinds of films, Gabby and I do. And I think as with the original impetus for this podcast, when we find certain topics, certain recurring subjects that generate a lot of discussion there is a i think kind of a natural impulse to say like well let's get something on the on the record and so for the past few months you know as this tends to happen in film discourse the conversation turns to you know the movies that are in the awards race which is always something that fascinates you gabby a little bit more than it does me um i try to retained a stance of jupiterian detachment uh from these things but of course we can't help sort of you know they, they drive all the 
marketing imperatives, all the discourse imperatives. Right. And so we end up talking about these movies. And so I have, for the purposes of this podcast, actually sat down and watched all of the movies nominated for Best Picture this year, which is not something I would ordinarily do necessarily every year there's every year there's like one movie that i just like i really don't want to watch like i just really i really like yeah. i really don't want to ever watch green book you know there's and usually somebody... at least three for me and once they turn yeah. it into 10 pictures that i just don't want to watch yeah um... the ratio is pretty pretty consistent and somebody will always be like so what did you think of green book and i'm like in, in, in like six weeks after the oscars if you still want to know my opinion i will watch it but my suspicion is no one will ever talk about this movie again after I the still, ceremony I, and that's I usually still the haven't case. seen it i still haven't seen it sorry because <laughs> there's because there's no need to right so in a sense these, um, these conversations have kind of a shelf life right um but you know they're not meaningless necessarily I mean, like they are they are sort of like self-recursive self-reflective you know they're the industry talking to itself about itself mm -hmm. um and and this year i think we have actually found that there are a couple of films that we both feel quite strongly about um positively and negatively there's there's a few films that we that we have quite strong feelings about so it's yeah so i think there's enough to to sustain some discussion um yeah but we'll, well, we'll start well, with uh, with going into some more general kind of awards update because we're also marking the end of an era with the the end of the succession tour, right? Yes. Um, you know, I've sort of pre-grieved this knowing that last night <laughs> Straight Actors Guild Awards would be the last time that the succession cast would be together. And um, <laughs> Jeremy Strong, Sarah Snook and Brian Cox were not even there. So, um, you know, uh, we're never going to quite get that full cast photo I don't think I think the the only year we would have gotten it would have been season two and that was the COVID year alas um but you know it's it's always nice to see um the ensemble sag win it's 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 you know this is a show that has been dominated by such incredible lead performances and as we always note uh the secondary tertiary supporting performances have been so excellent and so it's really nice just to see people like you know, Fisher Stevens and David Rashi and Zoe Winters and Juliana Canfield and et cetera, like with their SAG awards. And they let Alan Ruck give the speech, which I thought was lovely, eldest boy. And um, I love Alan because he is a genuine, like uh, super fan of the show. Like there was a, a variety Zoom interview during the pandemic, like the early days that I clung to with, you know, for dear life during those, you know, horrible weeks. And uh, it was with all the lead cast members and I love it. And we, we can link it or something. But um, every time like one of the cast members was trying to like recall a scene and they would forget, you know, a name or a line or, or mix up something that happened, like Alan would interject, like knowing exactly what happened. Like he has an encyclopedic knowledge of the show, kind of like I do. And it's like very obvious that he um is a super fan and it's just it's it's uh, sweet that they gave him the the last word but yeah it's it's sad and uh uh there were no individual wins brian cox matthew mcfadden and kieran culkin were uh up for lead actor and um they lost to pedro pascal um and you know it's kind of funny because pedro pascal and karen culkin have had like a sweet sort of like lighthearted adversarial relationship this oscars i mean this this uh this award season um kieran mostly dominating like he won the emmy and stuff but um it's it, it's been kind of cute and uh yeah sarah snook lost was also projected to win lost to elizabeth debicki um who you know while the last season of the crown was just abysmal she was excellent um i i can't 
really begrudge that. Uh, Snook won the, the Emmy anyway. Actually, Dabiki won the Emmy too, but she was uh, supporting in that category. And Snook was lead, and they were both lead here. But uh, Dabiki, is... uh, Dabiki also Australian, right? Yes, yes, and and yeah. So, uh, you know, so so all's well that ends well. Um, I I really liked Dabiki's performance. Obviously, not as good as Snook's, but um, you know. They all won the Emmys, so I don't really give a fuck, you know? But it's it's weird that Jeremy Strong sort of, like, I don't know, he doesn't get nominated for SAG. No no actor had won an individual SAG award throughout the entire run. The ensemble won twice, but um, they just, I don't know, they don't like those actors so much, the fellow actors. I don't know what it is. Yes. Well, now <laughs> that gives us the opening to say, you know, Succession actually didn't win enough awards. It was underrated. <laughs> We can we can circle back to to yeah convincing people, um, yeah so so um a little bit sad end of an era. I mean we still have like Writers Guild, but that's you know. Um, but who but who really cares about the writers, right? <laughs> yeah, who gives a fuck? Jesse Armstrong. We're, we're, he did he did nothing we love, to contribute. We love our succession writers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, um, obviously, but you know this was the last big sort of, um, big hurrah, and and it's over, and it's very sad. Um. So yeah, R.I.P. Succession. Um, unless you know we get the dream fifth season or Christmas special at some point, but um, yeah. Also, lots of movie wins last night and interesting um results that 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 we'll talk about. And and last year we did like a I think a general episode of of what TV and movies we liked, um, including awards contenders and non contenders. I mean you only have two of the 10 best picture nominees this year in your overall top 10 of 2023. I have four, but just two in my top five, you know, like, so, so framing the year simply by what was nominated for an Oscar isn't like necessarily our favorite way, but for some reason it kind of felt like imperative this year to do an Oscars specific episode. Um, This was the first time in ages I watched all 10 pictures because I actually wanted to. Um, I didn't hate any of them, which is huge. Um, I didn't like all of them, but I didn't hate any of them, which is nice. Um, and it, it felt like a slightly different year. I don't know if it was the the Barbenheimer effect, people getting back to the theater. Um, people saying this was the best year for movies in a while. I don't know. It feels perhaps a bit tone deaf to say, given the state of the industry, <laughs> Uh, but I see a lot more enthusiasm and discourse and and um, whatnot about the films in contention. So I think we'll we'll go through each one one by one, um, starting with the ones that we kind of uh, liked the least or have the least to comment on. But we're not we don't have like a stringent ranking here. We're not doing another ranking episode. So yeah, I mean, you mentioned how many of these films would like qualify for my like personal end of year, which I always I, I don't. I don't know that I did I put did I even put anything out publicly on like Letterbox or something I don't know but I I I'm not really as I say like in the trenches of the contemporary right. these days so if and, and there are so few movies that really get like released theatrically in America anymore at least like relatively speaking in a given year let alone how many of them are like worth 
talking about appraising critically so putting out like a ranking at the end of the year is just like well of the handful of like watchable films that had marketing spends this year here are the ones that I like roughly preferred it's like everybody's like talking about the same movies right like it like when we're looking at these lists in terms of like trying to find things to watch um that might not have been on our radar like they're I'm really only interested in like hearing from you know critics who like are really you know in the minds you know the gold standard being somebody like Felipe Furtado who always has his, his list on Letterboxd and will watch you know like 300 new release movies in a given year that he'll rank and recommend to people which is which is really cool because there's always things in there that are just totally not yeah. on my radar and there were a lot all. of like very very good movies that were completely you know under recognized or not recognized at all last year so um you know maybe we'll do an episode about the oils at some point um but for now I guess we'll we'll, we'll kick it off so we're gonna do the 10 best picture films um spoiler alert if you (laughs) haven't you know we're not here to do recaps of these films but um if you haven't seen one and you are sensitive to spoilers um you can skip whatever movie we are talking about and Um, and if you're sensitive to spoilers (laughs) by the way i recommend not watching the oscars because the oscars (laughs) i I really enjoy when they'll just like because they always have to pick like a really emotional scene to like for their clips package and they'll often just like here's the end of the movie like i remember i remember so clearly the year that like denzel won for flight they were just like here is a clip from like the ending of flight like his his (laughs) big scene that's like the dramatic resolution of the entire plot like there's no point watching flight now um (laughs) flight i don't even know if i've heard of that yikes okay so yeah we wash our hands of any spoiler related grievances okay (laughs) anyway so um we're gonna kick it off with bradley cooper's uh maestro and i'm gonna start introducing each film with mentioning the other nominations that it's up for besides best picture so for Maestro, we have also lead actor Bradley Cooper, lead actress Carrie Mulligan, cinematography, hair and makeup, sound, and original screenplay. Brandon, you kick it off. I don't really have too much to say about like these particular awards. Oh, you don't and, like, need to, yeah. Up for. Yeah. Um, in terms the of the discussion of the movie <laughs> itself, yeah, I mean, I don't know that this is, I don't think this is the movie that I liked least because I, I actually... I have a quite a bit of affection for this movie and I think for Bradley Cooper, even as I, I think it's not successful. Um, I, it, it's an interesting kind of bad movie, I think, and it's bad and unsuccessful in an unusual and kind of intriguing way. Like Cooper has this just exhausting vanity as a director. Yes. It's the really interesting thread that ties this and A Star is Born. I mean, those films are also united by the fact that I I, I really think he is like prodigiously quite talented as a director. I know you're not so hot on A Star is Born, and I think most people who admire that film, myself included, would at least say that it tapers off after a very strong sort of opening section. The first, like the the op- first act is is really, really good. I rewatched yeah, it the other night and it, I liked it a lot better than I did the first time. But it does yeah, it, it does t- fall off, yes. <laughs> yeah, so there, there's a lot of skill there. So wh- whether you would think that the film goes off the rails or not, I mean, like the fact that it, it begins in such a way that's very assured, you yeah. know, it's, ne- it's ever since the opening section of that film, it's never been a doubt in my mind that like this is somebody who has, yes, great potential to be one of the like premier sort of actor 
star directors yeah. of our time, like Clint Eastwood, who direct, I, I think he was nominated for an Oscar when Eastwood directed him in American Sniper. Um, yeah, he was. But, yeah. yeah, but yeah, but this film is just, um, yeah, it's 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 not even as good as A Star Is Born. It, he is interested in telling the story of Leonard Bernstein's life. This is a film about uh, the conductor composer Leonard Bernstein, and. It, it it skips around in his life and tells it these sort of like episodic mm-hmm. vignette sort of ways that is not too interested in giving you a very clear sense of like sort of what Bernstein did or what yes. he was famous for. <laughs> like you don't learn very much about it, which is no, very you don't. Choice. Yeah, and after like, Tar, I, I really wanted to learn more about Leonard Bernstein. <laughs> yeah, it is it is kind of an, an anti-Tar in an interesting way, or the, or the films are very much in conversation with each other. Obviously, Bernstein is a, is a, somebody who's cited very much in Tar. Right. Um, but uh, but a cardinal sin of many biopic films is that they just sort of tick you point by point through the Wikipedia summary of the uh, subject's life. And that's definitely not what Maestro is doing. I found it to be much more a film just about musical celebrity or an idea of celebrity or an idea of uh, classical music being subsumed into the popular culture and the celebrity culture of the 20th century. That's as I was sort of casting about for some sort of hook to be like, what does he think? he's doing you're like what does he yeah. think this movie is about exactly, aside from yeah. a vehicle to to win himself an oscar which he's gotten a lot of of grief for and i think he, right. and, and cooper is a very amusing uh just sort of celebrity figure because he uh, he so transparently wants to be he's so earnest a great, yes <laughs> a great artist and a great figure and i think and again that's where i have affection for because i think we should want our artists at least to aspire to something right or at least i i, I yeah, don't find that to be I, an objectionable trait in itself I agree, yeah you know? Yeah, yeah, um, there, there, there's some shame going around about, you know, Bradley Cooper's sort of thirst for recognition. But, you know, I I, I like him. I've never not liked him. And um, even though I really got nothing out of this, it was it was sort of pleasant enough to watch. Like, it, it, it kind of looked good. There was this couple of funny jokes and accents. And, and but, you know, it, it didn't like particularly I, I didn't again, I didn't learn anything about Leonard Bernstein. Um and you know i learned a little bit about his marriage but but even that uh well yeah that was maybe the more interesting stuff but it didn't even it you know it didn't go far enough like the other the other really interesting link between this movie and a star is born is that cooper kind of does the same sort of fake self-effacing move in both Mm. movies where he's like well this movie he's got this very big showy star performance in both films but both, but both of the films are like, well, it's really about my female co-star. Like she's really the lead of the movie, but that's not really the case in both movies. Like Cooper is always drawing the attention back to himself, yes. <laughs> right? Like he, like a Star Is Born, in all the other iterations of that story, it absolutely is about about the female lead character. It absolutely is about Judy Garland, uh, about Barbara Streisand. It's, a, it's about Janet Gator. It's but his in his version, it's not. It's about Bradley Cooper. Lady Gaga yeah. is not the star of that movie. He is. Um, he sort of he sort of steals the movie back from her. And so Maestro makes this sort of uh, pretense of being really about a marriage, really about uh, his wife, about the Carrie Mulligan character. Uh, but it's not. It can't be because she's just not as compelling, or she doesn't have as, as much gravity, or the movie doesn't give her as much gravity. And, and right. as, as long as we're talking about awards. I mean, I'll just take the opportunity to say it. I don't get the Carrie Mulligan thing. Never got it. Don't understand it. Would happily uh, swap her nomination out for any other number of performances that the Oscars didn't even come close to this year. Yeah, I mean, Mulligan, I, I go back and forth on her. Certain performances I really like. Others uh, fall completely flat for me. Um, 
yeah, I'm, I'm not going to give up on Bradley Cooper yet because I think he has talent. But, but yeah, he he seems to be a little preoccupied with with centering himself and and maybe you know he as he gets older, um, a little more learned, he will, you know, if he if he if he really wants to like give uh you know rich female characters an opportunity to shine, you know, he will maybe step out of the way a little bit. But um, I put this movie first just because I think it's highly unlikely that it wins anything. So, mm. uh, yeah, but it is uh, interesting that it, you know, Cooper still, regardless of how this movie was received, um, which, you know, I don't think it had a particularly positive reception that he still gets in there um, with these nominations. I mean, he did get the director's spot, which I think was correct. I think they got the directors pretty much correct. Um, but, you know, he, he yeah, got the actor nod. Well, he's got the right people in his corner. Isn't the movie produced by Steven Spielberg, right? I think um, he he's 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 got he's got the right backers. He's got he's got sympathetic people uh, in his corner. Yes. And again, he certainly the, the makeup and things like that. Like the movie looks really oh, great. Yeah. Like there's a lot it of it does look really great. I love the house so much. Produced by Cooper Scorsese, Steven Spielberg. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so these are these names that somewhat, you know, draw acclaim towards them by force of gravity. So yeah, maybe not going to win anything, but certainly a movie that I don't have much uh, much antipathy for, um, even as even as I say, yeah, it's, it's not it's not very successful. I'd be standing outside in the night. Deadbeat dads, rappers, crack. You said you wanted black stuff. That's black, right? I see what you're doing. Transitioning to our next film, um, American Fiction, which sort of like was the last film of these that I heard about um, kind of popped up uh, for me out of nowhere very recently. Um, it is up for lead actor Jeffrey Wright, supporting actor Sterling K. Brown, score and adapted screenplay. And it is highly competitive for that screenplay award. Um, it recently won the BAFTA and it also won the Critics' Choice. Uh, as we speak tonight, about an hour ago, it just won the Independent Spirit Award. So, um, yeah, it's it's um, it won yeah. for for best film or for the screenplay, you're saying for the screenplay. OK, yeah. Best film was Past Lives for um, for mm. Independent Spirit. Um, yeah. And I really don't know about this movie. Right. is terrific. Um, he's really, really good. I could watch it just because of him. And some of the jokes landed and, and were nice and zeitgeisty. But. It was ultimately a very frustrating movie um, because I could see the bones of something interesting. And I didn't read the book, but it does seem like they really shirked away from some of the boldness of the book. Um, you know, I've read the review that, that you sent me um, and it ends up just sort of being kind of a, a timid movie. Uh, they can't really get the family drama stuff right. The satire, it, it doesn't quite work. And, um, you know, the whole thing looks awful like i am almost mad that i'm starting to like notice this formalism stuff more <laughs> because <laughs> i i can't i can't get away from it now i'm like this entire movie like i'm waiting for an interesting transition or some interesting blocking and the whole thing looks like it was filmed on like a tripod like it did it you know it's just it was embarrassing in that sense a little bit i'm, I'm sorry to mr jefferson but um yeah yeah yeah, so this uh, so American fiction is based on a novel called Erasure by Percival Everett, which was published in two thousand one, and both the movie and the and uh, and the novel are about uh, this 
a character who's a professor and novelist, uh, Thelonious uh, Monk Ellison, um, who is having difficulty selling his manuscripts and he is uh, outraged and sort of frustrated by the trends of sort of, you know, ghetto novels. Uh, I think uh, one of the books that this that Everett was thinking about was pushed by Sapphire, which was later adapted to the novel, uh, into the film Precious. Uh, oh, okay. Which had been published. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but which had been published prior to, to Erasure. Mm. And so, and so in the novel, he, uh, uh, writes a, um, he wrote, a, he writes a book called My Pathology, um, which is, uh, a, just a full bore, uh, just steering into all of these stereotypes and all of these uh, offensive tropes uh, that he finds in these novels. And the joke of the of of uh, Rayshire is that uh, it, it becomes a big success, and uh, he gets a big advance. They want to make it into a movie. It, it becomes a contender for a big literary prize. Um, and in the novel itself. Uh, about a hundred pages of the actual novel Erasure is given over to to my pathology, and the reader is made to just you are made to just read this and sit with this and this this discomfort, this language, all these tropes, right. and that's where the hostility and the discontent of the perspective comes from. And so when I heard this was being adapted, and also that it, this had won the Audience Award at the Toronto International Film Festival, which is usually um, a predictor uh, that a film is going to be very competitive uh, for Best Picture. I thought, well, how do they make a crowd pleaser out of this movie? And as you're saying, Gabby, the, the the screenplay adaptation, I think, really just neuters the perspective of the book entirely because, of course, there's no real attempt to make the audience sit with any real discomfort. It's, it's much more interested in sort of flattering uh, the audience with yes. jokes about white liberals, you know, trying to be hip, trying to be with it. Exactly, um, yeah. And, it, and, and it's very bizarre because the satire is all so dated. Erasure was published in 2001. This is in 2024. The publishing industry has changed so much. Hollywood has changed so much. Of course, it hasn't changed in key ways, but the, but so much of the story just feels very anachronistic. It hasn't been updated yes. at all. And the and the essay you were alluding to, a very good essay um, by Evan Dent, who writes a, a literary substack. He wrote a really good essay comparing the uh, Cord Jefferson's uh, screen adaptation to the novel and what these changes sort of signify about it. And the, I think the very, uh, I think, astute conclusion that he drew was that Jefferson is really trying to sort of softly rebut in, or, or counter Everett's arguments about uh, artistic integrity um, by sort of giving more credence to the opposing point of view uh, embodied by uh, an author played by Issa Rae in the film who says, well, you know, is it really wrong to give to people out, these yeah. tropes, you know, to, <laughs> to, to, to give people what they want, you know, to, right. to, to be, uh, to be an agent in the marketplace, you know, in, in capitalism. Right. And, and the, and I, and the, that scene, which is a total invention of Jefferson's uh, ends as sort of a draw as is to say like, well, who's to say who's right really, right. Here? which ends up, I think being a very limp and cowardly rebuttal of what, yes. you know, whatever you think about Everett's novel, its point of view is incredibly clear it's incredibly direct and strong. And I mean, I, I, Everett is a writer who you know, I had read some of his other work and I find him to be so uh, just bracing in the way that he, not just with, you know, in terms of, you know, themes of race, uh, but 
just how he uses the literary form to sort of make the reader uncomfortable. Like he wrote a crime mm -hmm. novel called Assumption that was that it, it just in the certain way that the story was told, the details that were left out and alighted, I found it to be actually just a terrifying experience, like one of the most unsettling wow. books I've ever read. Um, and yeah, and as, and as you alluded to as well, I mean, not only do I think the screenplay is not very good, uh, but Jefferson, Jefferson is just not even a filmmaker it's 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 abysmally directed it looks really bad if he goes on to have much of a career after this you know i think he will look back on this and be quite embarrassed by it as i you know many first-time filmmakers are uh but it really is an experience of looking at this and thinking had this guy ever even thought about how to compose a shot how yeah. to film a scene how to talk to actors uh, before he did this it's very bizarre and yeah this is definitely the film that I liked the least and that I feel the most negatively about in the lineup this year yes um happy for for Wright and for Brown two two actors I I really like but um yeah this this um I'm not sure if I would watch this again although it's disappointing because I do I do think that there would be something there's potential there for great satire and it just doesn't doesn't land I am Bella Baxter I'm a flawed, experimenting person. I seek outings and adventures. Bella's so much to discover. Yorgos Lanthimos's Poor Things, which is... Poor, poor things. Poor. <laughs> Are we going to start doing stupid acts? Doing the Mark Ruffalo voice, poor things. The Mark Ruffalo voice is so funny. I know some people hated it, but uh, God, I loved it. I loved it so much. Um... So poor things. Uh, Yorgos is nominated in the director category. We have Emma Stone in lead actress. We have Mark Ruffalo in supporting actor. We have cinematography, production design, costume design, editing, hair and makeup, score, and adapted screenplay. So that's a that's that's a lot. Um, the most likely wins are are emma stone and production design i would also absolutely give it costumes um i think barbie was sort of the competitor for production design and uh costumes and hair and makeup to some extent and and we'll talk about barbie in a little bit but i think uh there's been somewhat of a backlash to barbie and poor things is getting a lot of um attention from from you know certain certain crowds people seem to really like the movie it's doing well in the in the box office um so yeah, I mean, I had no doubt it was fun watching this. The performances are good. There were some big laughs, but you know, Yorgos Lanthimos. I, I I don't really know how I feel about him. I I still need to watch Dogtooth because I feel like I've read some stuff about it and it might be a little bit more, I don't know, biting than some of his more recent work. But you know, I've been rewatching some of his stuff and it just it doesn't quite click for me. And poor things I found incredibly ingratiating. Um, you know, I, I kept thinking throughout the movie that I was being pandered to and that it feels like Yorgos wants to be liked by a certain demographic, which is very funny because I, I did come to that idea on my own and then discovered there's a Ringer article that is literally titled, Does Yorgos and the Most Want to Be Liked, which 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 uh, probes this a little further. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be liked, but perhaps not the best quality for an artist. Um, you know, like I noticed rewatching some of his movies that he leaves space after like a funny line read for the audience's laughter. And it's just like, ugh. And so <laughs> there was there was an app snippet I read from a friend, Ben Gordon on Letterboxd about poor things where he says, 
When Yorgos has Stone giving him the goods consistently, he should have the instincts to step aside and not make every shot in a given scene scream, I, Yorgos Lanthimos, am just out of frame laughing too. Um, which, you know, that is kind of how I felt watching this movie. Um, it's some of the sort of like uh, the, the liberal left um, pandering that that um, I saw in the script. But um, Poor Things has also been touted as like this bold exploration of womanhood and in some cases interpreted through a feminist lens but you know I, I really don't think there's that much there um beyond it being sort of a sex comedy which is okay but um I I take issue with that the idea this is a some sort of feminist movie um I will say like uh, obviously sexual awakening and and learning to love sex is a big part of becoming a woman but um, you know, Bella's first reaction, well, Bella Baxter being the the main character in this movie who it, it kills herself and a mad doctor played by Willem Dafoe. Um, she also is pregnant when she kills herself, takes the baby and um, does this Dr. Frankenstein experiment where he puts the baby's brain inside Emma Stone's body, inside Bella Baxter's body. And she comes back to life as a, you know, as a toddler and, and Emma's physicality here I mean she's an amazing physical performer and and comedian and and um you know I got a lot of laughs out of that but you know if we're talking about this as as a feminist movie the first reaction she has to realizing that she has a vagina and can have orgasms is to like pleasure herself with a piece of fruit and you know that play is funny it, it was funny um but you know none of the sexual awakening themes uh, are really explored in earnest because Bella is kind of always flitting around unbothered. She doesn't suffer. She doesn't really uh, register trauma. And um, she, it's sort of a, uh, I hate to use the term male gaze because it's over, I think it's overused and perhaps misapplied, but this was sort of a male fantasy of what uh, coming into womanhood looks like uh, I I think about a movie that I watched recently by Jonathan Glazer and we will talk about Jonathan Glazer shortly um, under the skin where Scarlett Johansson um, she is sort of playing a, a non-human in a, in a woman's body um, and it felt so much more trenchant to me when her character in that movie um, sheds her armor and sort of becomes a woman and she has an attempted sex scene and she freaks out upon realizing that she has female genitals and that's a lot more I think of an accurate representation of yeah. the first time you realize that you have a vagina um, and you know that whole movie is about the allure and power of her beauty and her sexuality um, but that moment is so crucial in the film because it completely nullifies all of that in that moment once you realize that you are a woman with a vagina you're the one always at risk of being violated being penetrated um that is scary and that's something that poor things really does not explore um and and uh, under the skin of course the final act of that the final scene of that um you know it, it um it it uh is very much played out and again i know poor things is a comedy and they've said it's a fantasy at that but i think it's worth like noticing some of these critiques from feminists um angelica jade bastian got absolutely panned on twitter for suggesting that bella should have menstruated that she would have menstrual blood um, which is not a bad point 
Um, Be Bella also has no leg hair. She has no unibrow. She has sex constantly without having to think about STDs and any brush she has with potential male violence kind of is played for a joke and goes unregistered just to keep things light. And I don't think the movie had to necessarily touch on these things, but a more brave movie might have a, a movie that wanted to deepen some of these themes would have. And, and Yorgos, I think, is talented enough to weave in the darker elements, but without, you know, losing the, the the comedy that he's, you know, known for, but he didn't go for it here. And, and I didn't read the book, but I've read about the book and it, it, you know, I would have appreciated seeing Bella in other environments besides, you know, restaurants and the brothel. And while Stone is absolutely excellent and does what she does so well, the, the performance I think is limited by the script. Uh, my favorite parts of the movie were the costumes. I could not get over the costumes and I thought Mark Ruffalo was really funny. Um, I appreciate Yorgos's like stylistic and visual ambition, but the aesthetic is never quite appealing to me. I thought this was kind of ugly and Tim Burton-esque in the worst way. I did love the costumes. I couldn't stop thinking about the costumes, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's 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 great. I I I co-signed pretty much pretty much everything you said. I was like, that's, 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 <laughs> this was the great. last one you saw, right? <laughs> This yeah. Was, yeah, this was this was the most recent one that I saw. Yeah, I, I I didn't respond very much to this movie. Um, I think the comparison you make to Under the Skin is really on point. Um, yeah, this movie I think it 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 sort of peaks at the level of kind of sketch comedy. Like, uh, and I don't say that pejoratively per se because I think Emma Stone has kind of missed her calling as being somebody who could have been in like one of the great sort of classic SNL era casts. Like she she yeah. like she's she's hosted that show plenty of times. She clearly loves it. She's very at home there. Her husband's a comedy guy. Um, she's and uh, I and I so she does all this stuff really well. But you're right, the movie is is very limited by the script and the way that it imagines womanhood. The other movie that it really reminded me of, uh, you compare it to Under the Skin negatively, and I and I would also compare it to The Shape of Water, which I think it's pretty. Mm, it has, yeah. has it has it has a lot in common with it in terms of like a certain kind of very safe, contained, flattering fantasy um, about womanhood, about the uh, about liberation and pleasure, um, which I, which similarly uses kind of like minority characters as uh vessels uh for mm -hmm. a white for for a white woman's pleasure and liberation right and it doesn't really have much use for them uh beyond her sort of individual narrative arc yeah the movie's just it's long and it, it makes this gesture towards the end it complicating itself when the um christopher abbott character shows up but uh, it becomes clear pretty quickly that the movie just doesn't have the capacity to complicate itself or to introduce yes. any kind of friction at all um so yeah so, yeah it's unfortunate yeah it's, I, I thought I, I think the way that he shoots is awful and very annoying and ugly there's not i, I don't like his formal style his lenses and i, I agree the art direction is, is hideous i hated looking at this it looks like ai i think it's going to date really badly um yeah, yeah. i i uh it looks like it's going to get production design. It, it recently won, uh, I think, at the BAFTAs production design. I mean, I would definitely give it costumes hands down. Uh, the big competition here is going to be the best actress category. It looked kind of like Emma Stone was running away with it. And then last night, Screen Actors Guild Award, Lily Gladstone won. And I'm telling you, Emma Stone was maybe the happiest person in that room that Lily Gladstone <laughs> Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> she was so happy. She practically jumped out of her seat. Like, you know, she did not want to win another one of those awards because she won Critics' Choice and then she won BAFTA, where Lily wasn't even nominated. And I think she, you know, Emma has a she seems like a very self-aware woman and person and and yeah. and like she really wants to be kind. And I think um, you know, there's 
Lily Gladstone, for some reason, lost a lot of momentum and it was sort of disappointing because it was you know, the whole idea was that you know, we were going to have uh, an indigenous best actress winner from this sprawling, you know, epic movie that Martin Scorsese made. And then, you know, the 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 momentum was just totally lost. But now it's, you know, now it's kind of exciting again. Um, I do think, you know, the praise for Emma Stone's performance here is a little bit overblown again, not because she's bad in it. She's excellent. And, um, you know, she is perhaps, you know, one of the best actresses of her generation, at least um, maybe the best in what she does, which is this sort of corked up manic pixie dream girl um, with a lot of physical comedy. And, and But that's kind of in her wheelhouse as an actress. And again, like I said, it, it's not her fault that the script wasn't deep en- deepened enough to include some maybe some more dramatic elements or something that would have challenged her more. Um, you know, I think of The Curse, a TV show that came out last year that 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 Brendan and I both enjoyed greatly. And Emma Stone was terrific in that. And, and if uh, she wins this Oscar, you know, I'll just sort of think it, it's it's for that. Um, I, I still think she probably has it in the bag. I think she it's more of a... Uh, academy appealing role and movie uh, poor things has gotten a lot of attention and killers of the flower moon has sort of gone gone into the night and disappeared um but it will make you know it will make that race exciting um at least yeah more more to be said about it killers of the flower moon what do i have to do you have to go to the real world you can go back to your regular life or you can know the truth about the universe the choice is now yours. The first one, the high heel. You have to want to know, okay? Do it again. So next was is uh, Barbie, nominated for Supporting Actor, Ryan Gosling, Supporting Actress, America Ferrara, Costume Design, um, Original Song, two original songs, uh, Production Design, and Adapted Screenplay. Um, I feel pretty confident to say this is only going to win song. Uh, I think it's the Billie Eilish song. I'm um, not. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, um, and I think I think I'm just Ken is also nominated, which is hilarious because uh, I wonder if Ryan Gosling is going to have to perform that at the Oscars. Um, I thought they might give it something else after the reaction to the quote unquote snubs of Greta Gerwig in the director category and Margot Robbie in the actress category. Um, it did get original screenplay at the Critics' Choice Awards, um, but it's it. it, it shifted to adapted screenplay for the oscars probably taking the spot of killers of the flower moon and i don't think it really has a shot at anything but that song um it kind of seems like there was a backlash to the backlash um it was completely shut out at baftas and sag and and uh you know but hey that's what the money's for right yeah i i i think that the sort of furor of over these uh quote-unquote snubs the big reason those that discourse sort of took off the way that it did was because most of the rest of these nominations frankly kind of played out the way most prognosticators and observers expected them to so there was really not much else to talk about in the overall slate of nominations and this became the the big story you know why weren't (laughs) it's not again it's not that 
Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie were not nominated for Oscars because they right. were. Greta, <laughs> that, was Greta, the, that was the great Greta irony Gerwig nominated for her screenplay. Margot Robbie is uh, nominated as one of the producers for Best Picture, but they weren't which nominated. I, which for I, the... which I feel like she's probably more happy about. Uh... Yeah, but they weren't nominated for the correct Oscars, which is all again we we don't need to, we don't need to rehash how very silly all this is that only underlines why it feels kind of self defeated to pay attention to these things sometimes right. in the first place. But you know that being said, um, if we're going to award acting and technical ability i would have been perfectly fine with the nomination for margot robbie because I, yeah. I like her very much and i think She's that great. this particular skill that she has of sort of playing characters through caricatures right of uh you know sort of plastic emotions that cover up real ones or that or that melt into real ones um i think it's it's, it's kind of a magic trick every time she does it I, I really enjoy watching her and i enjoyed watching her and gosling very much i think gosling's nomination is also very much deserved is one of the great comic supporting actors uh yes. comic act comic actors comic leading men of his of his generation um and uh yeah every scene that they were in in this movie uh well, maybe not every scene, but they helped the movie sort of stay watchable. You know, yes, this is even I, as I it kind of fell apart at the end. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Barbie is definitely a case of a movie that is like in all capitals, not for me. So I don't really need to have like <laughs> a considered opinion about it. But I mean, in, if it just to address again the snubs. Greta Gerwig's direction, I'm sorry, she's got to take the fall there because there's a lot of stuff in this movie that just looks bad and sucks. Yeah. I'm sorry. Like the Century City location. Once once they're is, outside is, is of Barbie ugly. World, it looks yeah. so bad. So, yeah. so bad. And, and in terms of the message, like, I, like, you know, intro level feminism, that's fine. I'm glad. But, you know, there's nothing particularly deep about the message. It's quite muddled. But it was very funny. I laughed a lot. I watched it twice. Um, enjoyable. And, uh, you know, good luck to them. Uh, our next movie. Do you have anything else to say about Barbie, Brendan? Oh no, the, no. I, I just made the note that I really loved. The hardest I laughed at a movie this year was that joke where Michael Cera says, "You know, once once they figure out how to build the wall across and not just up, you know, that's that's that that that's a good joke. You know, like the, you don't yeah. you don't get really good gag writing in movies very often. There were some good gags in this movie, so you know, give it that. Give a there give were. that to, to to Greta and to and to Noah Baumbach. And to Noah, thing. yeah. You know, he used to be a student, right? Yeah, that's why he knows how to inflict maximum pain on us. I thought all the Nazis were hiding in Argentina. Stifle it, Tully. Next movie we are going to talk about is Alexander Payne's The Holdovers, which is nominated for lead actor Paul Giamatti, supporting actress Divine Joy Randolph, editing and original screenplay. Um, I just think I need to mention that, um, you know, this is, you know, not a, not a happy subject, but um, Alexander Payne is facing statutory rape allegations from Rose McGowan. Um, I think that uh, the statute of limitations has expired and there's not going to be, um, you know, any any uh, legal action pursued. But she has come out and said it. Um, he has denied it and, and kind of written out a timeline supposedly disproving it um we're not going to get into a conversation about art and artist here today maybe at some point um we're here to talk about these movies and fortunately Payne himself was not nominated in the director category but it's barely been mentioned uh McGowan has been through a lot and I'm inclined to believe her um I wish I had something more insightful to say but I just want to note it um I think it's important that people know 
Yeah, I mean, so, Payne, yeah. Pay, not a filmmaker, I have particularly warm <laughs> feelings for either personally or for the for the filmography, which is interesting to talk about a movie that is as kind of, I think, purposefully ingratiating as the holdovers is, right? Like, I I, I think you you liked it more than me, um, but it, it it definitely has the feeling of I think artists with real skill, not just referring to Payne, but to the screenwriter, to the actors in this film uh sort of setting up softballs for themselves it feels like mm -hmm. people who feels like people who have, at a certain talent level intentionally sort of you know stooping down a bit to just really clobber one out of the park is how the holdovers felt to me yeah i completely understand that critique like there's not um it, it's it definitely appeals to a certain kind of of audience um you know there are tender moments there are relatable moments. I really liked the performances. I can't lie. Um, I think um, the highlight of the movie is for me, Dominic Sessa, uh, totally out of left field. Uh, this kid, they auditioned like 800 kids for Angus because they were like, how the hell are we going to find an Angus? Because the movie does not work without a good Angus. Um, absolutely not. So um, yeah, they, they, 800 kids i think something like that and he came out of left field with his no iphone face and his natural 70s swag um i think paul giamatti even said like this kid looks like he's from the 70s like <laughs> like get grab him um so you know he's been very it's been very cute to see him in interviews talking about the you know the catapult from from regular teenager to like standing around with the most famous actors in the world uh on red carpets and he's you know he's sweet and i think he made the movie uh would not have worked without him i was just sort of a sucker for the sentimentalism here um yeah again the performances were great we got um it's always nice to see um, Carrie, what is her name? Carrie Preston. Um, oh, yeah. From The Good Wife. Yes, yes. Um, and, it's, and it's attendance spinoffs. Yeah. But um, I, I, I do understand your critique that it, that it goes down too easy. Did you enjoy the performances at least? Would you be upset with, it, uh, with the performance wins? Upset is, would be the wrong <laughs> word for it. I mean, I, I, again, it's the... The acting awards they they you know, they so often fall into these sort of narratives that I just find kind of disheartening. Um, you know, Giamatti is somebody who that's the classic case of leading man in character actor body, right? Mm. And um, <laughs> and he, and he of course he's somebody we all have an enormous amount of affection for. I think the only other pain film that I really have really warm feelings for is is Sideways. It's the only um, one I think I yeah I also enjoyed yeah. Yeah, and so so yes, I like him in the film. I like Sessa, but again, whenever we talk about you know, well, the actors at least were really good. All this is very contingent on like what they're allowed to do within the yes. framework of the movie and like how they're directed. And the holdovers is just so programmatic in the way that you know after it becomes really quickly apparent that like every scene has this structure where these characters that are all supposed to be a bit prickly in their way. You know, they are acting a bit selfish. Somebody calls them out on it and then they bond quietly. That's like yeah. literally every scene in the movie. It becomes mm -hmm. impossible not to notice that. And so, yeah, I mean, like if Giamatti wins, you know, fine, great, good for him. It's one of those things where people will say it's really like a lifetime achievement award, which is one right. way of acknowledging that the film and the performance itself are not that remarkable. And Randolph's performance, I don't know. I, I don't want to be too harsh or anything because I think it's a good performance. I think he's a very good actress. And 
Yes, so but it's a little a it's a of, little strange that uh, the clean sweep, yeah. The clean sweep, you know, it, it's it's uh, it's unfortunate because yeah, it begins to whiff. You get a whiff of the kind of tokenizing that these narratives and that these awards are infamous for. And so, although it's a, she's a very good actress and it is a good performance, I think the role is a bit limited. There is the the film doesn't have much for her to imagine beyond yes. the grief yeah. that she performs. Right, right, um, it's, right. It's it's not as it's not as fully three dimensional as you would want it to be. Yeah. Um. Yeah, listen to her on Marin. She's great. She was she's a originally classically trained opera singer and sort of uh, fell into acting. Um, and uh, she's yeah, she you know I I'm happy for her. She seems like a like a great woman. But yeah, there were some supporting actress uh, performances that you know it's a little bit disappointing were overlooked. But nevertheless, you know not not a great tragedy. What a good story this is childhood sweethearts who reconnect 20 years later and realize they were meant for each other. In the story, I would be the evil white American husband standing in the way of destiny. Shut up. So we'll move on to uh, Celine Song's Past Lives, which is only nominated for original screenplay. Um, some people considered uh, Greta Lee, the lead actress in Past Lives, uh, uh, not getting a nomination as snub. Also, some people thought Celine Song not getting the director uh, nod was a snub, but I'm fairly indifferent on those skips. I think um, they've gotten plenty of attention and um, will continue to do well. I, I've always liked Greta Lee and I'm very excited to see what Song does next. I think she's talented. Um, this movie, I thought, was shot really well a very impressive debut i um it worked better for me as a reflection on the alienation of like the immigrant experience than as a love story although the love story pieces kind of started to work for me a little better on rewatch like john majaro and that whole the whole dynamic at the end i i liked it more on rewatch but i do hear the critiques that maybe it was like a little undercooked um i don't know you you liked this one didn't you brendan I liked the rhythm of it. Yeah, I wouldn't say that it was is snubbed uh, or and again, it would be all it would only appear on like a long list of my favorite movies of this year. But I did like it. And I think, um, you know, I'm not somebody who's going to connect really strongly to the whole immigrant experience piece of it. And I would probably agree that the screenplay is a bit weak and it's a bit too it hits its theme is a bit too hard. You know, some of the dialogue in that last section is pretty, pretty sledgehammer um, heavy. And uh, but I, I connected to it as a movie just about you know digital relationships and the, this millennial experience of just having like a phantom limb of you know just thinking about other things you could be doing because there's you know marketing algorithms and you know your social media feeds are always not to sound all you know you be on that phone about it but just uh but you, you always have this awareness of like other things that could be going on and so the movie narrativizes that and you know in this very culturally specific sense of you know past lives or whatever. but i saw that as a very universal sort of generational thing that i related to and i thought that the way that song directed a lot of these scenes with an awareness of all the other people in the space around them as if you know you're constantly out of the corner of your eye going like am i as happy as these other people you know maybe this is something that i'm projecting onto the film but i had a nice experience with it i, I liked it a lot yeah yeah it was good and um yeah, just one best feature at the Independent Spirit, so congratulations to them. This is a matter of life and death. But I can perform this miracle. World War II would be over. 
Our boys would come home. Uh, next film, the big one, Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, nominated for Best Director, of course, Lead Actor, Kellyanne Murphy, Supporting Actor, Robert Downey Jr., Supporting Actress, Emily Blunt, Cinematography, Costume Design, Editing, Makeup and Hair, Score, Production Design, Sound, and Adapted Screenplay. Um, Oppenheimer is a lock for pretty much everything except for supporting actress. Um, Blunt is not going to win. Uh, the lead actor competition was uh, a little tighter before uh, last night. Uh, Killian winning the SAG. Uh, Giamatti was kind of expected to win. So um, it, it, it uh, seems like, uh, you know, it will be a pretty much clean sweep. Um, I... I'm not a Christopher Nolan person. Again, this is this veers into genres that are just difficult for me to immerse myself in. Um, I obviously went to see this because of the hype. And I think, you know, it, it felt like something maybe a little bit more elevated um, that I would enjoy. And, um, you know, I respect the talent and the bigness of it all. It's I, I found it very watchable with some with some really great peaks. It went way up in my estimation on on rewatch. I, I watched it for the first time in the theater and, and people were behaving like, you know, just uh, like they were raised by wolves. It was absolutely awful. And and so I think rewatching at home maybe helped a little bit. Um, but nevertheless, like I still find it fairly surface level and corny in, in most respects, the nonstop score and like frenetic cuts to these blazing balls of fire and atom particles is so constant, especially in the first act. And it's, it's like, it's like oppressive to me. I'm like, I understand that some people that, that keeps them engaged and that, that maybe keeps the, the pacing interesting, but you know, I think something that really resonated for me from your review is that Nolan's scenes never breathe. Um, I did not feel like I got to know Robert J. Oppenheimer very well. Um, I didn't get to know his wife very well. And Kitty Oppenheimer has a pretty interesting story. And I think, um, you know, she was sort of, sort of shortchanged as well as Jean Tatlock, which was the Florence Pugh character, also a very interesting story that was sort of shortchanged. I know Nolan and women, you know, it's not really his thing. But again, like I'm never really going to like a filmmaker that can't integrate women into his films very well. Um there was some interesting stuff here about like the burgeoning nat uh, natsec apparatus in the early years of the Cold War, but ultimately that exploration I think stayed pretty basic and and mostly just amounted to this like issue of security clearance and and uh, scientists. You know, um, we should listen to them because they'll you know they'll save the world and and you know I didn't again I didn't hate it and I appreciate there are, there are people who loved it who acknowledge that the script is not very good or profound but then there are also like very rabid fanboys and I find it very hard to critique this movie without um people being super defensive about it and I don't know if that's just you know I'm not super familiar with Nolan's history and people feeling like he's been shafted um so tell me Brendan why is this movie dominating so hard please uh you know explain mansplain to me like the nolan legacy well i mean i think it has very much to do in terms of the nolan legacy but i don't know i don't know that i'm the best person to define that but it has very much to do with those those genres that traditionally give you a hard time like comic book movies uh etc I, I i think that it oppenheimer is tough for me because it 
is a movie that foregrounds its own construction. Uh, you know, the practical effects, the IMAX of it all, the chronology, uh, the scrambled timelines, which is a recurring fascination of Nolan's going back to his uh, his his first film following. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not somebody who's really anti-Nolan. I'm generally, I think, sympathetic towards him, even though his films don't always work for me. You know, when I was younger, his uh, he was somebody who was kind of important to me, and I became disillusioned with him after a certain point, I, After particularly with The Dark Knight, which I just didn't respond to the way most people did. Um, but the thing I've always responded to in his movies is his obsession with the idea of regret, uh, which is why his movies are always sort of backwards looking and why he's obsessed with chronology. His his, uh, his inevitably male protagonists are always haunted by some kind of like unfixable mistake in the past, which mm -hmm. is also where the recurring problem of the dead wife in Nolan movies comes from. You know, it's not that he's a misogynist, but that does say something, I think, about his literal mindedness and his sort of limited imagination, unfortunately. You know, he works in these big imaginative genres, and I think he thinks in big images, but I don't find them usually, I don't find them often to be very compelling ones, with some exceptions, like there's the the some of the shots of the the sunken house in inception i find to be quite moving and i do you know sort of tear up a bit at the, at the end of interstellar with uh you know mcconaughey trying to speak to his daughter across time through that sort of like cosmic bookcase very goofy idea i think you referred to nolan as as like a corny dad and i was like oh that's true that's he you know he for some reason there is this sometimes this image of him that mostly may just be one that his his fans have generated as a sort of cold remote kubrickian genius but he's really much more the sort of corny dad um yeah and and, and his movies really wear his heart their hearts on their sleeve in a big way and i think that that idea of regret is something that probably drew him to the Oppenheimer story. And I mean, the, the book that this is based on American Prometheus is a fantastic book that I absolutely recommend people pick up and read because the story is so multifaceted and this idea of a ruinous mistake in one's past as, you know, Oppenheimer, you know, as the father of the nuclear bomb, you see like, well, this is a classically Nolan kind of protagonist. But I also think that's a bit of a misreading of Oppenheimer that the movie kind of struggles to clarify or that gets kind of lost in the muddle of the chronology and the timelines is that I think the more accurate read on Oppenheimer. It's not that he was somebody who looked back with a single tear sliding down his face and saying, you know, the fa the famous line about now I am become death, you know, yeah. which 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 in the movie, I think I, I think I think that is one of the things the movie makes clear is that he just heard that phrase once and thought it was some cool shit to say, like kind of like 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 Jules in Pulp Fiction is like, I thought that I just thought that was some cold blooded shit to say. So yeah. he so he so he so he so he so he pulled so he pulled that one out later as like a as a kind of catchphrase. But I don't think it's it's accurate to say that he had like real perspective and clarity on his life's work. I think mm, the, the portraits that the authors in American Prometheus dry out and that the movie kind of gets it gets at, but I think fails to ultimately make clear is that um is that Oppenheimer was just a ruinously vain person. He was a dilettante. He was brilliant yeah. and he was and he was he turned out to be a perfect tool that the American state needed to accomplish this project. He per he turned out to be the perfect sort of leader of this project to marshal all of these resources and then, you know, he accomplished his use and when he wanted to continue using his influence as this sort of popular intellectual and the sort of conscience of a nation, um there was a naturally sort of occurring like a defensive immune response 
struggles uh, within mm -hmm. the state that was led by these particular figures. Um, that was led by say the, uh, the 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 Robert Downey Jr. character, whose whose name I'm, I'm forgetting now. Strauss, um, yeah. But by Strauss, yeah. Um, to to ruin him and to ruin his influence, and that was ultimately, I think, the regret that Oppenheimer had was that he wasn't able to maintain that kind of influence within right. the state. And I think that's that's just sort of a limitation of Nolan's sort of political imagination. I think a lot of people gave Nolan credit for recognizing and like depicting things like these sort of left wing atmosphere that Oppenheimer was steeped in. Um, you know, mm -hmm. in, in this sort of pre-war period, which is something that you don't really see generally in American movies. So it is quite remarkable. Sure, but, again, yeah, that stuff, yeah. but, that, but that stuff is in the book, you know, it's not like he was making that up. And I, and right. I think ultimately he does more to sort of muddle and simplify in a pretty typical biopic way uh, material that is a lot more interesting in the book. There's a fantastic critic um, who just goes by AK on Letterboxd, but his Oppenheimer review um brings in a lot of outside references and you know just paints a fuller picture of the many possible avenues that this film could have gone down and of course you can always say like well there's more to tell in a story as multifaceted as the story of the nuclear bomb right. uh but it, it but i i think that nolan's sort of singular interest in these ideas of regret and of this backwards looking chronology, I think ultimately do a lot more to kind of flatten the story than does to make it really the sort of like interesting historical narrative that it was. And I, I kept thinking, and this is of course an unfair comparison because any filmmaker is going to suffer in comparison to Scorsese, but I kept thinking about what a, what a Scorsese treatment of this material might yeah. have looked like, because I think there are certain things that Scorsese would have picked up on um, that Nolan just, that just did, frankly didn't occur to Nolan. So it's unfortunate because yeah, I think it's really interesting material, but um, yeah, I was quite annoyed and bored by this movie I, I don't like it very much yeah i mean uh, there's a ton of effusive praise for it that i that's sort of mystifying to me i, I mean when i rewatched it i kind of get it you know it's 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 watchable the pace is good there's all these uh fun actors that show up i remember you know in the theater oh my god that's that guy that's that guy and it's like you know that make that makes you know for for some exciting watching but those guys you, you don't ever get to know any of them like uh they come in and they they leave and maybe they come back i actually liked the strauss character i, I don't think robert downey jr was bad at all in that performance um you know, I, it's annoying that he, he's clean sweeping the awards, but um, I, I liked that character. Um, I, I don't know. You know, people point to the auditorium scene when everybody is clapping for him and then he starts seeing the bodies and he gets, you know, his his, his eyes get, you know, Killian Murphy's eyes get big and he gets like the regret face that he gets throughout the movie. And like people were saying this was a brilliant character study and like bullshit, like okay, so the guy who invented the bomb feels conflicted about it. Like, no kidding. Unless he was a sociopath, he wouldn't. Like, And you're even saying that it didn't even happen until later in his life that he felt bad about it. And it was more because he he lost political access. So, you know, like, if you're going to try and make this, like, emotional connection of, like, oh, he felt so bad about it because he knew that, you know, the bodies were were aflame and so forth, like, I don't know, give me something deeper than than just Killian Murphy, like, you know, having uh, uh, visions of, of you know, bright lights, and, and it just, you know, it, it did not seem to probe any of these interesting themes that, that are yeah. embedded throughout yeah. the movie. Yeah, no, no, it is not as strident, but it reminded as as Sorkin, but it reminded me um, in very unfortunate ways of Aaron <laughs> Sorkin. I can um, see that <laughs> throughout the movie. Yeah, um, yeah. So you know, but it's okay. It's I mean, it's not the worst movie that's gonna have ever win Best Picture by by I, by a long shot. 
but but yeah talking of undeserved nominations i mean emily blunt is is flat out bad in this film and it, yeah i don't know it's, it's, I, I don't know if she's bad or if it's for me i'm a little more sympathetic and think maybe she just you know they don't the character wasn't very well written um you know, did I really, uh, character. It, maybe she would have done better if they had included my favorite stuff from the book, which is like long after <laughs> Oppenheimer has, has left has left government and they have a house in the US Virgin Islands where they're both just like getting just awfully oh drunk and having screaming <laughs> matches and like full view of and getting into like rivalries with their like blue blood neighbors. Like some of that stuff is really, really great. That's also I know you, you mentioned there's, that there's... to me and like that would be interesting. Like Kitty Oppenheimer is an interesting character, no? Yeah, there's also very telling passages where, you know, his neighbors recall him being like very proud of his work on the bond. I and mean, then there's not a there's not really a, a sense that he like looked back with like, you know, a thousand yard stare of like ruefulness or whatever. He was very paternally proud mm -hmm. of his work and had an emotional attachment to it to the end of his life. And so yeah. so yeah, I mean I don't know. I, I it's 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 I, I, I think it's a, a very flawed and I ultimately kind of disappointingly simplistic treatment of a of a really interesting and important story. But all right, but, again, so, I'm not, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be mad when Nolan. Right. Was, yeah. I mean, it's, like, it's okay. It's like, fine. Yeah, <laughs> it's fine. It, it's it really is kind of just like yeah, it's made for it, and it's nice and and good for good for Christopher Nolan. I, I recognize that he's very talented, and he hasn't always been recognized for that. But yeah, we'll move on to our next. We're getting towards the end, so we have Anatomy of a Fall, Justine Triette. Um, this movie is getting a lot of attention in the award circuit um one non-english feature and screenplay at the globes um international feature at the critics choice um it uh what did it win at the baftas it won screenplay at the baftas um and yeah i mean sandra huler is nominated here for best actress um, Justine Triette is nominated for director. The movie is also nominated for editing and for original screenplay. And this is a big one. Um, they just kind of swept the the Cesar Awards, which is what, like the French Oscars. Um, Triette was the first woman director to win since 2000 and only the second in the uh, awards history to win. I don't think a Triette upset is possible at the Oscars, although I would very strongly bet on her coming in second um in the voting it's too bad we'll never know but she's having a very very big moment and uh, i would say watching some of her other stuff i find it very well deserved i absolutely you know fell in love with sandra Hewler this year um and having gone through a bunch interesting, of interesting interesting phrasing <laughs> interesting phrasing the, the actress okay <laughs> not necessarily the characters oh yeah no i got you played um but yeah you know like sybil requiem tony erdman great stuff she's so versatile um and an upset here would be very very fun just because she's a beast and she gave two oscar worthy performances this year and two of these best picture nominees but it's it's highly unlikely which is fine um this is also i think competitive for screenplay but um again i you know american fiction seems to be running away with it but i but i think it will probably have come in second if it doesn't win um, as far as the movie itself, I, you know, the beginning to me was sort of like, oh, like this is like an art house Dexter episode. Like it's cool. I'm kind of into it. Like I, I like true crime. You know, I'm not obsessed with it. I'm not a psychopath who does like, you know, YouTube uh, uh, breakdowns of, of, of true crime stuff, but I, I do like crime stories. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the, the, 
the middle portion, the second act of this movie is really the strongest. Um, I was a complete sucker for the for the big fight. I <laughs> think I had to pause the movie after and take a break. It was so <laughs> intense. Um, and yeah, I, I, I didn't also really like the end either. It didn't really do much for me, um, but I still really liked the movie. And um, I, you know, I wouldn't be upset if uh, it wins any of these I, I it doesn't look super likely um but you never know and um i am you know just very ex excited that triette's getting a lot of attention because uh it seems like you know this will open this is again you know like we talk about the oscars and you know it doesn't really matter who wins but for someone like justine triette like the attention she's getting now from this film you know this is gonna like open doors for her for Hewler too but like you know she doesn't really need it you know she's but uh, you know it's it's that kind of stuff is exciting yeah i think I, I don't have a ton to say about anatomy of a fall which is a movie i didn't connect very much with although i i i do recognize that a lot of skill went into it um and i think what you're saying is correct that one of the things that's most exciting about it is just what this means for justin Triet going forward because i do think she's very she's a very skilled filmmaker she's very good with actors you know the fact yeah. that like swan arlo and antoine reynards who plays the the prosecutor became mm -hmm. like sort of like fan cam stars out of this yeah. movie i mean that's an, <laughs> that's an unusual thing for a foreign it language is. film production i mean obviously yes. this is one that you know the, the courtroom sort of procedure is is a register that kind of translates in a way that a lot of other international films might not even if we're just kind of gawking and saying like they they just let people go off like this. Yeah. Court, it's, like, it's, like, it's just like anything it's goes. Just like it's just like Cal court. it's just like Calvin Ball rules in, 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 in French justice over there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like, if we're talking about you know, you mentioned uh, the film Tony Erbin that Sandra Hüller is in, where which was directed by um, a German uh, filmmaker named Marin Ade, who hasn't made a film now in, in eight years. And you know, we need you know, as we're we're about to talk about one of our oldest uh sort of reigning masters of filmmaking, we need our youngish masters uh to 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 be putting in the to work too. I mean, Mar I mean Marinade <laughs> has not like disappeared. She's been very active as a producer. She has her name on a lot of films, but I'm like, I'm I'm looking for the next Marinade joint, like come on, and I'm looking forward to the next Justine Triette joint too. So about so I'm I'm, ha I'm happy for this film's success, even though I'm not particularly invested. Yes, fair enough. Um so that leads us to our final two movies, our two favorites sort of the two headiest the osage they have the worst land possible but they outsmarted everybody the land had oil on it black gold money flows freely here now i do love that money sir <laughs> so we will start um, with Pillars of the Flower Moon by Martin Scorsese, which is nominated for Best Director for Martin Scorsese, lead actress Lily Gladstone, supporting actor, um, what's his name? Robert De Niro. <laughs> ever ever heard of him? <laughs> no, he uh, he's amazing in this. Uh, cinemat it's it's upsetting he's not getting attention for it. Cinematography costume design editing score original song and production design so this is one of the two books i did read of the <laughs> the the, the uh, pictures here that are based that are adapted from books and uh, i'm pretty upset about the screenplay snub um i i know that the movie sort of turned the screenplay on its head but i think that that was the right call um i'm not sure why it was so hard for people to sit with um it really seemed like um, 
you know, this movie had some momentum early on and then and really just lost steam. And, and it seems very likely that this movie could go home completely empty handed and get goose egged again. Scorsese getting goose egged again. I mean, it. <laughs> I love the score and like Oppenheimer is going to win the score. And I just I, I it just doesn't compute. I don't know. I, I, I'm disappointed that the movie seemed to not connect with a broader audience. I understand that like a three and a half hour movie about uh, horrible white people inflicting mass harm on indigenous communities is like, is rough for most people. But, um, you know, it was still better than at least eight of these films. And, uh, you know, the complaints about the runtime, fine, whatever. Um, but I really loved it. I thought it looked beautiful. I didn't have, you know, and, and for me, runtime sometimes is a problem. I get antsy and I get anxious. I, I did not have a problem. I mean, this movie just sort of uh, uh, just bounced along very easily for me. It was super watchable. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't really know what happened here. I don't know what the issue with Scorsese is and why such a wonderful filmmaker gets shafted like this. I, I don't know. Is it because this was a difficult movie to swallow? It's hard to watch these perpetrators uh doing what they're doing and and uh it was very different from the book you know uh, so it was rewritten as well right yeah the writing process there's been a lot of yeah smoke. chatter about it there's been a lot of smoke <laughs> around like what exactly happened, happened i mean the, yeah i mean i mean like the general understanding that was in a long deadline article before the film's premiere was that uh you know the original conception had been that dicaprio would play um uh Tom White would play the uh would play the FBI agent FBI, investigating yeah. all this but then later took the role of Ernest Burkhart when in Scorsese's telling it was it was DiCaprio who said this feels wrong we should be telling the story from a different point of view we should be telling it from inside the story rather than right. outside it, as and the then didn't they have Osage Western procedural members help rewrite the script or was it Paul Thomas Anderson? <laughs> that's that's all where it starts to get a bit muddy. Yeah. I mean, like, certainly, yes, it seems there was quite a bit of input uh, from the Osage Nation um, on the film. And, yeah, rumors of uncredited rewrites by Paul Thomas Anderson, which I don't know how much credibility to give that because, you know, the, the screenplay is officially credited to Eric Roth, uh, who has written a number of really great screenplays. Uh, in addition to some not so great ones, but he knows what he knows what he's doing is the point. Yeah. I think. Uh, but uh, but yeah, Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, I'm, I'm struggling to think where to where to start about it. I, I think um, yeah, the 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 nugget I was thinking of was that story that people love telling about Scorsese mm -hmm. when he was making um, Alice doesn't live here anymore, when he was talking to Ellen Burstyn about the part Ellen Burson, who was an established actress at that time. And, you know, she had asked Scorsese, you know, like, why, you know, why, why make this film with you? Like, what do you know about women? And, you know, in the retelling, it's Scorsese who says, not much, but I'd like to learn, you know, I'm, I'm open to learning. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's very, it's very sweet, you know, and it, it, it's, it, it, and it plays very well into what I'm aware of is the sort of popular conception of Marty as like a great and it's something that's played a big role in the narrative around this film and it's sort of awards campaign of Scorsese as like a great ally which is like the language that Lily Gadstone has used about about him and, and about yeah. De Niro and DiCaprio too mm -hmm. um and uh and it's also a counterpart to his status as the ultimate 
uh, maestro, right, of world cinema, of this mm. sort of like first citizen, this model citizen who through his world cinema projects and all his advocacy is always very admirably stumping for other filmmakers who need the spotlight, who need uh, the kind of volume and attention that he can give uh, to other filmmakers. And he's always doing that. And so so he has this role of kind of the curator and the professor all at once, but he's also kind of the eternal student. And Killers of the Flower Moon is a movie that is very much in both of those modes where it's the master doing the things that he knows how to do, kind of taking you to school, the audience, but also he's very uncertain and he's finding his way into the material and he's really hesitant in trying to figure out what is the correct way to tell this yes. story. It is a movie that is not entirely sure of itself. Um, and that manifests itself in some ways that I think are really interesting and quite radical because one of the collaborators who's doing really radical work on this movie is the goat, Selma Schoonmaker, who uh, it, her editing for this movie it was very surprising to me the way that this film is constructed, not just its perspective, but on leaving the theater, you know, you sort of have this realization that the movie never does this thing where it lets you in on the conspiracy where mm -hmm. like where the scales fall from your eyes or like where a character is, has all of this, this dark satanic vision that King Hale De Niro's character has is revealed to everybody. It's something that everybody is kind of led is kind of slowly realizes yeah, or it's they a little seem bit submerged to, yeah or they seem to understand it all along right and and everybody is sort of acting with this sort of like double vision of understanding this like terrible understanding and also denial at the same time which is sort of the key to this poisonous love story that's at the center of the movie right. because the descendants uh of Molly Burkhart and Ernest Burkhart were quite insistent that they that the two really did love each other and the film tries to to honor that even as that's I think something that as you're alluding to there was something that was kind of difficult to take about this movie for a lot of people it's not just the crimes that are being depicted that you know white society american society is still implicated in but the impossibility of this perspective it's like how can we accept that this is love that this killing right. this taking this torture is is also a kind of is, is is an expression of love and you know there are certain images in this movie that try to express that that are some of the most poetic and devastating that scorsese has ever put together like the yeah. scene of ernest going to you know administer uh, the the morphine or or the, the insulin, insulin to, to, yeah. to Molly with the the sort of like field of fire in the window outside them is just gorgeous and there and there is also scenes in this that are uh, images that are totally unlike anything Scorsese has ever done before like the sort of visions of the afterlife you know the the omens of animals you know the owl that appears mm. totally unlike anything yes, that yes. I've ever seen before in Scorsese's yeah. movies um, and so so yeah it's it's a very odd mix of uh, a, a movie that is at once a completely sophisticated work of a late master um, at the peak of his powers and also somebody really trying to push and find something new and not being entirely sure of what that is of even in the sort of remarkable self-critical epilogue if this has been the correct way to sort of tell this story you know if if, if there's a ceiling on the amount of good that a Scorsese film about this subject can do, you yeah. know? And so I think the, 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 the best reviews I've read of this movie have been really tried to like honor that and work through that sort of self-critical tendency. And so, yeah, I think there's a lot of 
there's some really remarkable, amazing stuff in it. But yeah, at the same time, you know, I'm not shocked that it's lost some momentum. Yeah, because yeah. it's not. It's it, it is. It's a, not. It is. It's not fun. <laughs> it's not. It's not fun. It's not flattering. Although there is stuff that's fun in this movie. Like like you do kind of laugh to yourself, even though like I'm not really sure that it's a good thing when he's he's kind of starts playing the hits. He starts playing the Goodfellas hits, like the whole like long section about that. Um the the drunk who they rope into the conspiracy to murder the other guy and he, he starts getting drunk with the guy and decides not to and i'm like that's right, the, right, the, right. that's the maury scene from goodfellas <laughs> it's the same scene you know um and uh, so you're kind of laughing when you realize he's playing the hits even though it's sort of even though it's those moments also kind of play like well he's falling back to a place that's maybe safer for him and safer mm-hmm. for the story because this is yes. what he knows how to do yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm not. I'm not shocked that it's lost a bit of momentum, um, and or even the Gladstones. Were you shocked lost at the uh, yeah. at the Leo snub, or you think um, people just really didn't understand the performance? Or no, I mean it's so. I mean that is what's. I I think it is again. You talk about what the Oscars are. You know, like it's. Is there a narrative here that the Oscars can sell to themselves? It's much. I think it's much easier to sell the narrative of of appreciating what Lily Gladstone is doing because there's mm-hmm. like a historic sort of like nature to her win and her nomination um that you want to reward well, she's also uh, but, made did an excellent performance as well completely yeah, nuanced and yeah, yeah of course and i think yeah and i think people are a bit more split on whether the leo performance is actually good yeah leo people is, are people are a little confused about the character um, which i think it, is funny because leo for me is always an actor who is always just so effortful and I haven't always loved his performances, you know, like back mm-hmm. when he, everybody was saying, well, how, why hasn't this guy won an Oscar yet? I'm like, I- I've seen all the same performances and I'm not asking this question. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I would have given it to him for Wolf of Wall Street, which I thought he was very funny. In. Yeah, Wolf, um, uh, I would have given it to him for Aviator, but whatever. Yeah, but so, but I'm, no, I'm not I'm not shocked that people were were, yeah. were cooler on that performance. No, but it is nice that he has been incredibly supportive of Gladstone and showing up yeah, to course. a bunch of yeah. like shitty industry events that he never would to 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 be by her side. Yeah. I, I I got a lot of respect for him for that. Um, what else is Leo doing with his time? I mean, come on, we know this is a man who barely experiences <laughs> pleasure. Like, come on. He loved the Beyonce show. He said it was like the best, one of the best live installation performances he's ever seen. So you know he, he's he's got some some feelings. Do you um, think he's uh? Do you think he's playing Beyonce through those earbuds of his when oh he's? Oh God, uh... stop! <laughs> <laughs> the Alexander Skarsgård. I can't think about that. Um, yeah, he might he might be jamming to Renaissance while he's uh while he's laying there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you mentioned here um if there were what were an award that you would like to give um this movie oh yeah yeah it would be wanna... it would be jack it would be jack fisk yeah i, I mentioned Thomas shoemaker and uh but yeah jack fisk who did the production design and like built a lot of these buildings like does it like or like They're redesigned incredible. a lot of these it looks these incredible this movie yeah I mean, Fisk is expensive, you know, like he mm. does, he ha- he doesn't have a ton of credits to his name. And so it's kind of surprising. I, I don't think he's actually won this Oscar before, even though he is kind of legendary. Um, he's married to a very famous, successful actress, as he's paycheck. And they, for a, a, a good period of his, of his uh, sort of working years, he took a back seat to help raise their children so that she could, uh, you know, uh, play the role oh. of breadwinner. I did um, not know. Sissy Spacek. He, wow. Yeah. Okay. So they have a, yeah, I mean, I mean, that's the isn't that like the coolest like life ever? I mean, like they they yeah. met, 
I mean, I mean, they met and like fell in love while they were like doing set dressing on a racer ahead, you know, like and they're and they still were, they're still married. They were working on Phantom of the Paradise together with DePaul McCaster and Carrie. I mean, like, come on, like, how cool, what a like, dream how cool story. are these people? Yeah, you know? make a biopic about that. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. I, I mean, you could never find two people cool enough to play them. No, know? yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, but, but yeah, Fisk, one of the absolute like legendary craftsmen in in Hollywood history, and I and I think that his work on this movie does so much to create the world. And again, to that that theme of like double vision of understanding of seeing and not seeing, like the big windows. There was a great New York Times profile that gave a nice window into the Fisk's basic marriage, um, where I think uh, Fisk used the phrase "eyes on the town." to describe, you know, the the sort of function of that billiard hall barbershop, which is a very odd combo building, but something that really existed mm -hmm. in history. And uh, his vision for those those big windows where they would look out and see everybody and everybody would be able to see them, this two-way vision. Um, I think it's incredible. And there's that scene of the, yeah, the exploded house with like the the charred limbs and things and that fire and that, and that the fire scene, scene. Where, where the arson scene was incredible. Yeah, oh, he's unbelievable. Mulholland Drive, There Will Be Blood, Water for Elephants, yeah. The Tree of Life, The Master. My God, he's got, yeah, quite a resume. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he doesn't, he's a, he's a big part of why the, the film's budget is as big as it is because the kind of work that Fisk does that is based on so much like real historical research, not taking shortcuts, really working with the same tools that the real people would have been using that these buildings would have actually been built with. You know, it's not cheap. Yeah, the New World for sure would be the other big one I would point to in his history as being just mm. an absolute landmark in this kind of you know, like recreation of a, of an historical period. But yeah, that's, that's that's the that's the one that should win. I don't know if you if you have a strong opinion about what's going to win. Oh, I, I'm pretty sure. Sorry to say that poor things is going to win for production design. It's won pretty for, much all the pre precursor awards. I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, for the for the for the for the for the AI art backgrounds. Yeah. Oh well. Oh well. Again, oh, Jack well. Fisk. Jack Fisk will have to settle for having the coolest life of anybody who has ever lived. Ever. Um. Yeah. So I mean. You know, big conversation around Killers of the Flower Moon is, of course, the ending, um, where we see Scorsese's sort of hesitancy, self-criticism, self-awareness to some extent on display. And um, this is a good transition, we thought, into talking about The Zone of Interest, the final movie we have here, Jonathan Glazer's The Zone of Interest. Um, a very different film from Killers of the Flower Moon, but both films centering perpetrators and having these sort of codas to um you know bring us to the present and try and get us to reflect on what it means to watch a movie about perpetrators and, and so forth and I'll just mention the zone of interest is also nominated for Jonathan Glazer is nominated for best director. It is nominated for best international feature film sound and adapted screenplay um, sound probably being the most likely and incredibly well-deserved. Um, and yeah, the movie has just released on streaming and is starting to pick up momentum and it's a little bizarre uh, because nobody had seen it. I've been dying to see this movie since October when you and Mark Ash were talking about it just because the premise sounded so interesting. Like I, I, you know, Holocaust movies come and go and a lot of them are not good. And 
I'm not particularly interested in, in many of them. I, I grew up with a pretty robust Holocaust education because of where I'm from. Um, I have, you know, saw the, you know, emaciated bodies and the worst of it uh, before I ever saw a feature film about the Holocaust at, a, you know, at a very young age. And so this movie was really immersive for me. Um, I loved it. And I, you know, um, we can get into talking about, um, you know, maybe some of the challenges people have with these movies, um, you know, and and the uh, the form and, you know, particularly with the zone of interest, the form, the formal restraint is is uh, very striking. But, um, yeah, this idea of, um, you know, this this self-awareness of these two filmmakers, which I found very striking. And, you know, there's dissertations and scholarship and so much words and and interesting thoughts that have been written about the idea of atrocity movies and we're not going to be here attempting to come to any you know sort of new uh insights or new conclusions but um you know i do think this is it's, it's worth talking about because it will be an ongoing conversation because the atrocities never end as uh as maybe both of these endings um are trying to tell us yeah i i think um yeah it's tough to to know where to begin with it but I, I, <laughs> it is tough yes the zone of interest yeah, is yeah but, yeah, but if I, 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 thinking about the the two endings you know and, and uh yes yes and and the and the and the ending in particular zone of interest uh maybe i couldn't care less about spoiling um of <laughs> this yeah this this shot of um uh, of Rudolf Hess looking down a darkened corridor and seeing a keyhole of light uh, that opens and becomes the present day Auschwitz, um, and this scene the museum, of how, yeah, the scene of how custodians, the yeah, custodians of how it's become a museum. Yeah, so there's, there's interesting ways to read that, but I, but I think principally the way to think about it, and I think what sort of opens up a discussion of what I think we both appreciate about the movie is this idea of a corridor of a continuum between the present and the past. Mm -hmm. And that I think is an idea that, at least in the popular conception of the kinds, because it's very interesting to think about this and killers as both sort of like Oscar movies in a sense, yes. right? Because they, because it's, there is a long tradition, obviously, of movies that deal with this kind of like weighty subject matter that deal with atrocities right. and that deal with it in a way that I think often we understand to be rather safe, to be rather flattering to the historical perspective of the audience who's presumed to have learned the correct lessons from history already and right. to know better. Um, and what Zone is, and, and I, and what both these films are trying to do in their own way, and I think what Zone is really particular trying to do is it is trying to wedge that door back open and say, say ha have we really learned all we can from the mm. past and yes. say is there are, are there not more links for us to draw between the experiences of those not even of those who suffered but of those who inflicted the suffering uh right. and is 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 there not more for us to learn and i think that's a that's a rather taboo idea and i don't say that in a sense of you know uh wanting to applaud somebody simply for breaking a taboo but i think it's a worthwhile one to kind of to push on like i i and i think that that is a real bone of contention with some of the film's critics who would say that you know and i and, I, and again there's a lot of ink that's been spilled about this there's a lot of dialogues happened in you know the last century about the idea of holocaust representation in cinema and whether you can even whether it's even possible, let alone worthwhile or admirable, or what you know, to make a film about these subjects, about this period, about these acts, about these crimes, 
that signifies in any direction other than back to itself um, because the events themselves have so much gravity that they just suck right. everything into themselves. Can you actually successfully make a movie about the Nazis that is about anything other than the Nazis that becomes anything other than just kitsch? And I think that Glazer is working through this idea. And I think what I respond to in the movie is the sense that although the movie has been called, it's very easy to talk about it, these cliches of like rigorous and it's a, you know, it's a, it's a tightly controlled formal experiment. Mm -hmm. It's also not like he breaks rules at certain point. Like he sets up rules that he pushes on, but he breaks them. He sets up containers and then he walks outside of them. You know, he is, he's asking these questions. It's like, what is the correct way to make a film about this? Like, is there a new way for us to approach yes. this? And what I responded to most in zone, I think was that sort of like, trying to figure this out like trying to work through this and say like okay this isn't settled like we haven't made the definitive holocaust film whatever that would even look like right here but is would there it, something yeah, but is there something more for us to do with this territory and i respond very much to the idea of you know you talk about centering the perpetrators because the formal conceit is that we're we stay almost totally within the experience of the family of rudolf hess the commandant of auschwitz um and we are only ever the violence of the camps is only ever sort of seen in the background alluded to it's heard as you said heard, in, the, yeah. mas in the masterful sound design um but what the movie is principally about is not a study of these people as people it's about it's a study of these structures and the yes. technologies and the systems that govern their lives and that i think is the linkage that he that glazer establishes between the present and the past and there was a really a, one of the smartest things i read uh, about the ending was from uh matt ellis um in his capsule in this movie where he said that you know the the, the sound design sort of melding into those vacuum cleaners like mm. the cleaning at the end yeah, yeah, of the movie yeah. that that sound design establishing that link in itself like the machinery being something that is on going because i think the because the right. linkages because the linkages are about you know the nazis as these sort of pioneers you know in in, in the in the uh, doc, the documentary Shoah, the scholar Raoul Hilberg talks about how the actual machinery of the final solution itself was the lone thing that the Nazis invented. Everything else that they did was sort of borrowed. There was precedent for it um, from, you know, from uh, from anti-Semitic uh, campaigns of the past. You know, there was from uh, from colonial systems, there was precedent for everything else they did, but except for this innovation of this industrialized machinery of mass death. And the movie is about, you know, the Hess family and the Nazis as innovators and as pioneers. And implicit in that idea is that their ideas have not been abandoned, but there have been refinements and, they, and that machinery sort of keeps going in yes. the background. That's And that's the very unsettling thing is because it's not just that you see these people as like, wow, you know, I'm like Rudolf Hess because he has a job. I have a job. Uh, but <laughs> as, I, as I sort of texted you, I was like, does this movie, is this movie saying that it's fascist to have a house? You know, because <laughs> No, it, it, but it, maybe. <laughs> but, it's, 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 but it's sort of, it, it feels that way a little bit sometimes right because it's saying like well it's, it's like no a house itself is not fascist but at the same time it's like this is part of the machinery that these people use to not only you know benefit from this system of mass murder uh but also to sort of box and compartmentalize and keep it out because although these people are vicious and wicked ideologues who are not banal they're this is movie not a movie about the banality yeah. of evil they're quite obviously evil and malformed people 
Um, they do experience it as wrong. They know that they don't want to live next to a river with human remains floating in it, obviously. Right, that's why she is covering, you know, why she tells her mother, she's, you know, oh, the the, the ivy will grow in and cover the wall. The flowers yeah. will grow in and cover the smell. You know, she doesn't have to say it outright, but we but we know that. And it's 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 so jarring. And it's it's especially if you're familiar with the images of what's going on. On the other side, it's um, it really is a horror movie, and a lot of people have have framed it as such um, that the absence of of those images actually make it much more horrifying to me, um, you know. And, and I, I'm defensive of this movie, and def- also defensive of Killers of the Flower Moon, but um, you know, I a lot of people really have trouble with the idea of centering perpetrators, and per- you know, particularly extremely evil perpetrators um you know and i found myself incredibly impressed by both films and the care that glazer and scorsese took in in creating these films and i will always contend that like rigorous rigorously research endeavors to like center perpetrators is a useful exercise because violence and evil are not like mystical inexplicable forces um you know this is like an area of study for me so perhaps I'm a little bit more primed to uh, enjoy or seek out movies like this, but I think we can and ought to do our best to understand what drives people, what drives groups to violence, to hatred. Um, you know, so you know, a lot of art fail, fails miserably at this, and uh, I, I think what Jonathan Glazer is doing in the zone of interest is is it's completely new. Um, it 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 is a, a reframe of of uh the holocaust that i just you know i hadn't really thought about this idea of what you're mentioning with structures and technology and then you know we get into the whole domesticity aspect and and how that relates to identification and so forth but yeah i mean we started this podcast about a family of really bad perpetrators and we had to contend with like discourse about that for years and so you know i i guess i feel somewhat defensive uh or i did about about these movies and and what i described to brendan early on as um critiques that could be written without having seen the movie because they are applicable to all atrocity movies you're never going to make a perfect holocaust movie film is never going to resolve the question of violence but i will always believe it to be a constructive medium for that exploration and uh you know, in discussing my exasperation, you know, and noting a lot of conflicting criticisms that often led me to like think, well, just go watch a movie where Nazis are explicitly bad and where they're killing people, where there's emaciated bodies. There's plenty of them, you know. Um, the complaints just started to feel like I wanted this to be something else. Um, but I, you know, I don't want to, you know, I'm I'm new to this. Again, I'm a student now of film, and I don't want to fall into a trap of like defensiveness as my analysis, as much as it really bothers me, some of these criticisms, and I find them some of them so stupid and wrongheaded on their face and just completely missing the point um but yeah despite the care that glazer made in taking this film in in making this film uh and scorsese as well you know their self-awareness at the end and and what they've talked about in interviews um it reflects their their feelings about the limitation of this kind of art and i think you know we need to I, i need to value and honor that like they're these unconventional endings you know that explore these ideas of of penance and reflection and remove and and how you know how we how we appraise atrocity felt uh like 10 20 50 years later we look back and we say how awful um but then it all happens again and you know i didn't know about jean-luc 
Godard's take on the Holocaust in film until Brendan told me about it. And, you know, I think that's fascinating and it sort of recontextualizes my, my frustrations here. And, and um, you know, even though I happen to think these filmmakers did an excellent job executing their visions. There's always this industrial role that these movies play and particularly as we're talking about this in the context of like an awards race, right? It's kind of inescapable as these movies play this industrial role of allowing um, an industry that, you know, if not directly, you know, historically implicated um, in, you know, if you want to, if we talk, if we think about the Holocaust as a failure, as a global failure to intervene, to act, to avert uh, what was happening, um, and about the ongoing failures uh, of American industry, of the American state to act to avert the ongoing Israeli genocide in Gaza, which is something that uh, the team behind Zone of Interest has been uh, pretty consistent in speaking about when they have the opportunity yep. to do so. And again, that's I think that Zone would be a more limited film and again, adjectives like, you know, useful or interesting or like hard right. uh, when talking about the subject matter. Again, this is the totalizing nature of this representation of representing yes. this kind of subject where you think, oh, maybe the critics, you know, they, they have a point because it's so difficult to talk about this. But it would be right. more limited if, if we thought that this was just, you know, a subtweet of people across the sea and it wasn't about us at all. And, and I think that uh, and the, the reaction that I thought that I felt a bit defensive about, you know, because Gabby, I think we both feel a bit defensive of this movie because we had such strong emotional responses to it. Um, it was not just about, you know, thinking about atrocities that happened to someone else or thinking about how, you know, this really calls out other people. You know, I personally feel implicated and called yes. out by this movie, <laughs> you know, and it's, it, it, and again, it's, it's, that's, it's, it's, it's that approach that is the movie is not about characters and psychologies. It is about technologies and modes and specifically and these and like repression sort of... and, and compartmentalization, both as, you know, as uh, architectural yes. and structural, but also psychically, you know. Yeah, um, what are what are the what are the sort of smokestacks in your window that you draw the shades on right like exactly. you may not live and, next door to them but how far away from them are you and what are you doing in your daily life to distance yourself from these things and in what ways are you directly or indirectly benefiting from this sort of like ongoing machinery of violence which again i i, I think this is a very worthwhile idea that glazer is pushing on is to say that like this machinery has not stopped it was not dismantled it moved into the background and it takes different yes. forms and it is ongoing and other their places today um and some of the people who it, it just because some people will watch this movie and say wow what a powerful message about other people that has nothing to do with me it does not mean right. that he's not hitting on ideas that i think are quite resonant and troubling right and, and a lot of people are you know affronted by the idea that i i should i identify with a nazi because the nazis were were so uniquely evil and horrible and yes the nazis and the holocaust uh, you know there's no denying it it, it it's it's pretty bad and, and, I'm, okay, and I'm not, so, so, you're succession not... has plenty to teach us about this nazis <laughs> terrible right we've really talked plenty bad. of times on this podcast about like is the concept of like viewer identification how useful is this idea at the end of the day what does this even tell us about engaging right. with this material about about what we experience when we watch something like this yes and I think focusing on the idea of the compartmentalization, the order, the rigidity, the repression, um, I think that's where it becomes really striking. Believing in something bigger than yourself, right? Like perhaps the most, you know, one of the most 
not a lot happens in this movie in terms of plot. There's a lot of blink and you miss it things that 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 enhance the story and that are that make you more horrified. But you know, the big plot point is that Hess is getting basically demoted um and has to tell his wife who has built this, you know, bucolic garden right next to um a concentration camp and she's very proud of it. And you know, her mother comes and visits and you know, and 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 ponders the question, oh, maybe um maybe that, you know, Jewish lady whose house I used to clean is over there. And it just, oh my God, it like it just like hits you in the gut. You're like, they're just talking about this. Like, um, you know, just just like any anybody would, you know, have a conversation with their mother about uh of uh, you know, their neighbors or so forth. And and um you know it, that that scene is particularly horrifying in the in the way that it's like uh the the long shot and she's she's explaining everything about the garden and then she tells she says you know you know Rudy calls me the the queen of Auschwitz and stuff I, I mean it just just the fact that people did not see the evil there was was um insane to me but um the like the what what basically happens is this i this idea of like you know she she doesn't want to leave he has to leave because he doesn't have any choice. And, uh, you know, uh, there's been, you know, a, a you know, a, an article that came out that sort of describes this as a, a movie about middle manager life. And uh, some people took major issue with that because, uh, you know, maybe it, it feels uncomfortable because there are a lot of <laughs> middle managers among us. And we don't want to, again, we don't want to be anywhere near close to identifying with these people. Right. Um, but that was, you know, you know, that is this is what the movie is about right it's like the Lebensraum and the blood and soil and moving east and believing um that you are building something that's going to last um that is going to preserve you that is going to protect you from the pain of the repression that you have to exercise every single day to be able to get up in the morning whether that repression you know most of it is completely subconscious um but the stories that we have to tell ourselves every single day to wake up in the morning, despite the fact that we're surrounded by atrocities. And yes, we're not all surrounded by Auschwitz, but we are surrounded by by horrifying uh, neglect and and uh, starvation. And even in this country and, 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 you know, this is where I think, you know, the modern comparisons start to get very uncomfortable for certain audiences they want to be very distanced from this violence and see it as something as an of, of an aberration but my my husband's grandparents all survived the holocaust um i think only one did not end up in the camps he i mean he managed to just just stay in the ghetto the others were went through the whole process the the ghetto the work camps the death camps um and you know they sort of had an oral history to share with, you know, my husband and his siblings about their experiences. And a lot of it was not so much about how hungry they were or how scared they were or watching people get shot. It was the the humanity that was so stripped away from their caretakers, from the Nazis, that there was never even a moment, a glimpse of understanding that the, that that this was wrong of, of throwing you a bone um, that they were literally just, you know, vacant bodies um, so detached from themselves. And that's, that's part of repression is that you are, you know, I don't want to get into deep into psychoanalysis, but a lot of, you know, <laughs> Nazis, and there's been a lot of psychosexual studies of, of Nazis and um, a lot of them, you know, 
were beaten and abused and starved themselves. And um, there's a lot that you have to do in order to perpetrate and and commit this kind of violence and be able to wake up in the morning and keep doing it. And, and part of that is completely dehumanizing um, not only yourself, you know, but you know, the people that you are, you know, obviously the people that you're committing the violence against. Yeah, that, 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 there's that really remarkable line towards the end where Hess is talking about the party that he's at with yes. the other Nazis. Oh, the, God. And all he can think about is all, all he could think about is how he would gas as the, like the logistical problem of how to gas everybody in the room, which is a real like, you know, you, you, you just you just take your work home with you. Right. right, you know, when, she, when, you're, when, you're like, the, when you're this, okay. when you're this, when you're this kind of ideologue, the work just comes home with you. You know, right? It's scary. I mean, his soul is rotting from the inside out. I, I, again, like I'm the kind of person who will point out that very few people are born violent or, or, or born with a propensity for violence. Yes, there are people with antisocial personality disorder and psychopaths, but they're few and far between. Violence is something that, uh, you know, whether it's interpersonal, individual. In this case, you know institutional um it, it it's something that uh is is formed through all sorts of psychological processes and identification processes in-group processes you know i think about the scene uh of um you know a, a, there was like some little nazi concert and there's a burn victim sitting in the front row and he's kind of the only yeah. guy there and he's like pleased and smiling and his face is burned off and it's like you are telling you're waking up and telling yourself every day that that um you know this vision of 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 nazis um you know taking over europe taking over the world um is so important to you and you believe in it so steadfastly that you know it doesn't matter that your entire face is burned off you're still going to go and tend the stupid little fucking concert well he's, he's got nothing left at that point right and that's what i think some have said about the you know the meaning of that I think Glazer said something like this too about the meaning of you know that vision that Hess has at the end. Um, yes. It's you know it's that you, you can have these moments of of clarity or whatever they don't really change anything because you know the because the ideology is so strong the structures that operate around you that you've built in order to make sure that you keep doing your job are so strong and I think it's important to underline as you're talking about like it's not just about the movie's not just about people who have like certain kinds of jobs who like work in these fields where they may be responsible for violence. It's it's also about just like the way that machinery of like professionalization, I think, yeah. is you know it enables certain kinds of groupthink, certain kinds of you know violent ideology, certain certain methods of compartmentalizing things Certainly, that you may yeah. not like. You know, I, I think part yeah part of that that incompleteness that the movie has where it's like all these ideas that we're talking about, you know, the things that the movie is trying on, they're things that you can read into it and people can say whether they think these ideas are worthwhile, whether they're simplistic, whether they're too obvious or not, you know, like it's very fascinating the way that, you know, it's like as, as totalizing as this kind of cinema is, it's possible to make a movie that actually also seems this open to people. Right. Um, and again, it's, I, I, I wrestle with in my head, you know, is, you know, is the fact that the movie feels such a like a good faith effort to be does that justify it in itself does that is that also just a way of saying you know the intentionality and the choices and the design don't matter because the conceit kind of kind mm -hmm. of justifies itself you know because i don't want to fall into that trap either but i mean right. again i just think that that pushing on these ideas and the way that glazer does is is worth doing as much as i understand you know skepticism misgivings of yes this, of, of course the, of, the, of this kind of cinema for sure but yeah i mean it, it, but that 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 comes around to again to what we talk about when we talk about um this 
kind of this apparatus of awards giving and of the kinds of movies that Hollywood narrativizes into like these are you know the best that we have these are the best of the industry in an increasingly international uh motion picture academy um that yes. is a lot more open to awarding films from outside of america like zone like anatomy of the yeah. fall right um so it's, it's 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 interesting that these movies sort of end up there um that killers and zone both end up in there as examples of oscar movies that you know fit into a certain paradigm with movies about heavy subject matter movies about atrocities um but they're also movies that have this question of like is can we really accomplish something within yes. this apparatus like can we accomplish something within this industrial mode you know does right, something right. else need to happen i mean like I, when i a big part of the reason that I disengage from these conversations is that, you know, for me, I have a very just like fatalistic view of the American movie business. Like to me, it just seems over, you know, like we're just living mm. in a kind of like, I don't know where you want to call the date of death exactly, but it, you know, like it feels like we're living in an afterlife. It feels like these are everything that we're seeing are just kind of like after images and like death rows, you know, old dying, new struggling to be born, that kind of thing. Oh, Succession-like uh, themes, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean like it's this, it's the, it's the story of our age. Right. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and zone for me, a big part of my ex the ex I felt very meaningful experience I had with that movie was reading it was reading Naomi Klein's book Doppelganger at the same time, which is very mm -hmm. much about these I ideas about, that, yeah. about confronting this feeling of being at the end of something yeah. um, and feeling like something new has to arrive to take its place. Both of these movies are suggesting that the old forms that they're sort of operating within are insufficient and yes. that something new has to take its place and they're trying to push where they can, um, but they're limited. And so it's very, and so it's very, very interesting to me to see, you know, these recognized and said, these are the, these are, these are the examples of the best of what we can do because the business doesn't want to think this about itself. It does, doesn't want to, yeah. doesn't want to think that it's over necessarily, even though these movies kind of suggest that some kind of transformation needs to take place that isn't taking place. Yeah. And perhaps there is reason to hope, you know, we have filmmakers like Scorsese who are really trying and, uh, you know, maybe new generation, who knows? Um, I, I try not to be as fatalistic about this stuff, but, um, you know, it's, it's very understandable. Uh, anything really quick that we want to, uh, note outside of the, the best pictures, um, Oh, I mean, we didn't <laughs> got totally shut out. That was funny. Um... I mean, we talk about shut out. I mean, like we can talk about all. I mean, yes, May December is the kind of movie that we expected. It did get us. Well, pe people were like all about the Charles Melton supporting actor. Yeah. It did get the oh, screenplay, yeah. the screenplay nod. So good for Sammy Birch. Um, I didn't see any of the animateds, but I know you liked Boy and the Heron, right? Boy in the Hair and Clears easily amazing Clears. amazing amazing movie yeah easy easy like one of my one of my top five yeah for sure it's, um, it's what it's I, way up there. I did not like the movie that is most likely to win best documentary. I thought it was uh, completely devoid of important context and borderline offensive to me. I can flush that out at later at another point. That was uh, um, Mariupol, right? The, Twenty uh, days the in Mariupol. Doc. Yeah. Yes, um, but I think. Uh, Four Daughters is also nominated, which is one that I really, really want to see. It's been on my yeah. list. It, ju it just won at the Indie Spirit Awards tonight. Um, international feature. Um, oh, I, I think... wanted to say, so, sorry, before we move on from, from yeah. the documentary, because uh, oh, yeah. Oh, right, right, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, because there's a film that was nominated. I was quite gratified to see a film called To Kill a Tiger, which I actually wrote a, a, a short review for when I was doing some screeners for uh, the Toronto International Film Festival a couple of years ago. Um, what premiered To Kill a Tiger um, is about a, uh, a rape case um, in India uh, where uh, an underage girl uh, is, is is gang raped and her, her father has to advocate for her within the, within I the court system. I remember the story, yeah. Yeah, and I thought that it really subverted and evaded a lot of cliches of these kinds of stories, these kinds of films. Um, I found it to be uh, just really, re just really intelligent um, and a very unusual way of approaching the story. And I was a very, I was very gratified to see it included as a sort of recognition that my my, my instinct there was was correct. Um, and I and I hope people see it. Although I, it hasn't really gotten great distribution, I think it played for like a yeah. week on on one screen here in Chicago. Um, but but yes, I would I would really will... recommend if people have the stomach yeah. for that kind of subject matter. I think it's a pretty remarkable movie. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully, a bunch of these will will hit streaming in the next couple of weeks before the show. Um. International feature now is becoming such a weird category now, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, that international movies are sort of starting to fill in in, in the best picture category. So, like, I don't know. They, they need to rework this somehow. Um, Zone of Interest is in this category, and it's also nominated for best picture. Um, it's not going to win best picture, but it very likely could win here. I still really want to see The Teacher's Lounge um, and Perfect Days. I think Perfect Days is going is. I think I saw something about it streaming. So um, it's in yeah. theaters. Perfect Days is playing is getting pretty wide releases at multiplexes near me. Yeah, I'll um, check it out for for um, my local. But yeah, yeah. I don't I don't watch any of these shorts because these shorts are a fake category. You know, they're designed. Yeah, to I watched. I watched to, to Kobe Bryant and Taylor Swift. So I'm not not my not my cup of tea. I watched the last repair shop and thought it was nice. Um, you know, maybe we'll get some, I, it doesn't seem like there's going to be major excitement in terms of upsets at the Oscars. Maybe there will be a, a Nyad surprise. We'll get a, a, a Jodie Foster or a Annette Benning. It will be, <laughs> it will really, it will really be a legacy win for her work on true detective season four. <laughs> they both sort of deserve, which is, which has already entered the hall of fame. <laughs> Oh well, yeah. I, a, show, I a show, a show that I did not watch. Did you watch? I, yeah, no, I didn't no, watch it no. either. <laughs> All right, so um, yeah. Any any closing thoughts about any of the other categories? Uh no, um, no. I would just reiterate my my general sentiment that um that um, American cinema is dead, um, and we live in its Brendan. afterlife. <laughs> and uh, no, I mean uh. If look, if uh, if journalism and criticism are also being murdered by irresponsible yeah. ownership, um, and you know we all have it, we all have basically an obligation to sort of step into the breach and start our own zines and uh, online verticals, and everybody has to adopt a micro budget filmmaker and an international uh, sort of art house filmmaker and really advocate for them. Because uh, you know what, this work isn't going to do itself. And I'm sorry, but you know, logging on and having conversations about which uh five a24 movies are better than which five neon movies that get released every year this is not a substitute for a healthy film culture and uh you're not doing cinephilia sorry you gotta we gotta go what gotta go be adventurous get in the trenches of the contemporary or just retreat to the safety of your plex servers and your criterion channels which you know hey it's a living so all right you heard him um everybody 
enjoy the Oscars. Um, do you have any thoughts or anything you want to share with us? Any tips on the any tips on the betting lines? Send them yeah, down yeah. this way. <laughs> I'm trying. Or we got we we've 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 got a pool going. I'm trying for a payday on Oscars night. We'll see, but um, let's go. Let's go. Howie yeah. deals. <laughs> All right, folks. That's been the Roycast uh, on the movies. Roycast all the movies is that our new title? We'll <laughs> think Roycast of one. On <laughs> uh, yeah, keep following us. Look, at, you know, once we find more movies we want to talk about, movies, TV, art, we might we might have some other art that we want to talk about in the future. Some performance art, perhaps, in the near future that Gabby and I uh, may have some opinions to share. So stay tuned for that. And yeah, just continue to look out for us in your podcast feeds. And we're very grateful uh, to all the folks who are still listening to us. Uh, uh, we love you. Uh, yes. Take care, everybody. Uh, bye-bye.